Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support and enjoy. We've got uh, we've got Jennifer Willette. Uh, Jennifer is the author of four popular science books, including Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self, uh, The Calculus Diaries, How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse, which we were just talking about offline over there. I know you're jealous. Uh, the Physics of the Buffyverse, and Black Bodies and Quantum Cats, Tales from the Annals of Physics, all of which are published by Penguin, and which I believe are available tonight for purchase and signing. Her, yeah, right? Yeah. Buy some books. <laughs> Her works appeared in Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, New York Times Book Review, Discover, Slate, Salon, Smithsonian, Mental Floss, there's a big list, Pacific Standard, Nature, and New Scientist, among other venues, and she maintains a blog called Cocktail Party Physics at Scientific American. That makes two Scientific Americans. Well, four, actually, I guess. I'm American. No, I'm <laughs> and scientists. I'm an alumni. So Jennifer, <laughs> Jennifer holds a black belt in jiu-jitsu and lives here in L.A. Also with her husband, Caltech physicist, Dr. Sean Carroll. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> and last but certainly, not least by any estimation, uh, we have Dr. Alex Korb. Alex is a postdoc researcher in neuroscience at UCLA. His research focuses on mood disorders and the development of a new brain stimulation technique using ultrasound. Uh, since 2010, he's written the neuroscience blog Prefrontal Nudity, which is great, uh, for Psychology Today. The title's the best part. I mean, it's one of the best parts. It's like saying the frosting's the best part. It's all the best part. Uh, Outside the lab, he coaches the UCLA women's ultimate frisbee team, where he uses his knowledge of brain and behavior to unlock their peak performance. <laughs> his book, The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, is coming out in spring 2015. Dr. Alex Korb. Thanks for being here. And thank you all for being here. And thank you all for getting smoothly lubricated to make this that much better. So what I was thinking... <laughs> No, no don't be. Well, I mean, shout out. Hey, yeah. This is the PG-13 panel. We don't, we don't need this, right? You can hear us. I'm not right? old. We don't need, I don't need to, hey, what's up, everybody? I want to be louder than the audience. Um, uh, science writing for me has kind of been a labor of love when I discovered that I liked to write about science and communicate science more than actually doing science. I know a lot of uh, PhDs and postdocs can relate to uh, something like that, but... <laughs> um, I started writing for free and out of my own interests just because I wanted to understand, you know, videos, viral videos that I was seeing and, and GIFs and, and things about the world, you know, just stuff that you encounter in your daily life. I wanted to try to explain it to learn and to hopefully also teach someone after that. So I did it all on my own and I took writing courses and I tried to just make it happen because that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I found that there was a lot of nerdy people out there who appreciated how nerdy I got with just about anything and everything, whether it be Superman or Firefly or Pokemon or whatever. Um, and it's kind of been self-perpetuating since then. Great. Yeah. 
I think you got one there too. What you? How about oh. yours? Okay. I have came at it the exact opposite uh, way that Kyle did. You know, so we're kind of like mirror images. Yeah. Um, my background is actually in the humanities. I have a degree in English and a minor in journalism, and edited my college newspaper, and kind of avoided science like the plague um, until I was about 24, 25 years old when I was a starving freelance writer who wasn't really making it to New York City because everybody wants to write for Esquire and turns out that there's a lot of competition. <laughs> um, I ended up working for a physics organization, um, had never taken physics, was scared of it, had that knee-jerk reaction that everyone else has, and just fell in love with it. And it was interesting because I fell in love with it by getting to know the people and um, talking to physicists and then having them tell me about their work. And when you interact with them one-on-one, -on -one, physics comes alive for you in a way that it never can, I think, in a classroom setting where you're just looking at, you know, calculating the slope of an inclined plane. I think if I had taken high school physics, I would have hated it. Um, but as it was, I hadn't, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that I really, really loved physics. Um, they needed people to do science writing for them. I started writing for, like, nonprofits, and um, eventually that just gave me the confidence to start pitching uh, more general interest magazines, and that snowballed into books. I once swore I would never write a book, and yet I did. Um, my whole thing is always trying to put physics back in the general culture. And I think this is true of science in general. We tend to make it something scary and separate. There's like the science contingent and everything else. And sometimes they'll have a technology column in the media, but that's really about it. Health and technology and then everything else that's scary is over here. And I don't think that's a good way of looking at science. I think that it is every bit um, creative uh, and part of the human endeavor as anything else. So my interest in pop culture and culture in general and the intersection of science came out of that. I'll use my own microphone. Oh. switch. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, I, um, I've always liked science and I've always liked writing. Uh, in fact, in, uh, in uh, high school, I, uh, I secretly wrote a novel and you can actually find that uh, in my desk drawer. Um, <laughs> People are leaving now to go find right, it. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's not a well-kept secret. Uh, the, uh, but no, I've always liked writing. Uh, you know, I took a lot of creative writing classes in college. And I've always, always liked science. I majored in neuroscience, actually. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, pretty much I had almost finished my PhD. I guess I had just finished my PhD in neuroscience uh, that I was like, oh, I can, I can do both of those things together. Because um, actually, I really don't like writing for scientists necessarily because when you're doing a PhD and you're writing your dissertation you get so focused on the minutia that it sort of gets pretty boring uh, but I found that whenever I would talk about what I did to like normal people they'd be like oh my god that's so cool uh, and then you start to realize like oh yes I too once thought this was cool uh, <laughs> And that's why, you know, I started, I majored in neuroscience, got a PhD in neuroscience. Um, so uh, that was when I started my, uh, my blog on psychology today. Um, and uh, my, I decided I couldn't, wouldn't have a blog until I came up with a good name for it. Um, so that's, I decided prefrontal nudity was, uh, was good. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, uh, I write mostly about, I write about neuroscience. Uh, 
because I think you know the brain is really fascinating, uh, and you know the the basic thing I'm trying to do is uh, as explained in the subtitle of the of the blog, uh, uh, prefrontal nudity, the brain exposed. Um, I'm just trying to uh, you know just describe a lot of the things that. Uh, there have been so many advances in neuroscience in the last, you know, particularly in the last 10 years that I feel like most people are interested in, but it hasn't been communicated to them. Um, and then uh, I recently just wrote a book uh, about depression. Uh, my dissertation was on depression, but it's, you know, uh, that's much drier. This is a lot more grander theories and explains it uh, to the layperson, but that's actually coming out in March. Um, but yeah, if you're interested about neuroscience, you should uh, check it out. Let's go, Alex, you bring up an interesting question. Let's actually go backwards from this. So for, for all of us and for all of you, uh, you know, you're, you write about science, but your readership isn't largely comprised of scientists. How do you keep it interesting and accessible for, you know, all of us? Um, that's a good question. I think I, uh, um, I have to, uh, just remind myself of what I was excited about in the first place. I think I just go to a place uh, of where, um, when I was a freshman in college and first, you know, went to my, you know, neuroscience uh, one class, uh, and uh, you know how each of these things I learned uh, was just so fascinating. Um, because after being, as I said, being steeped in it for. Uh, eight, ten years, whatever, it sort of loses that, um, that edge. And so uh, I think it's very helpful to have uh, lots of friends who don't do neuroscience. And, you know, my brother and sister, they're not, uh, you know, they don't do science really at all. Uh, so, you know, just in talking to people, uh, I, I, you know, I sort of say something and I read in a paper and that it doesn't sound particularly interesting. And people are like, oh my God, that's so fascinating. And they'll, you know, want to know more about it. And I have to remind myself, like, oh yeah, that is interesting. And so working myself back to that place where um, I, uh, you know, realize that 99% of the world knows nothing about this thing that's been banged into my head for the last 10 years. Um, so it's really special to be able to get to uh, to share that with people. Um, so yeah, I'm just reminding myself of that. Um, I uh, ob obviously, I mean, I, I unlike you, I mean, I, I'm the person kind of going what? <laughs> so, I mean, it's actually very easy for me to put myself in the position of the general uh, reader, be, the general person, because I was so for so long the general person, and even now, I've been doing this. <laughs> 20 years. Um, so I, can, uh, I know a lot more than the average person, but I'm, you know, I still get lost. Uh, so it's very easy for me to uh, feel, you know, to understand what level it needs to be at. For me, what's difficult is that I write primarily about physics, and you don't have an obvious tie-in, particularly on some of the more abstract theories. It's not all time travel and wormholes, <laughs> you know. Um, if you, it's, I remember having to like figure out a way to explain um, non-perturbative calculations, perturbative versus non-perturbative calculations in string theory. Right, okay. totally. How many yeah, people yeah. know what that is? Uh, 
This guy, wow. you people are awesome. <laughs> I think we're self-selecting a little bit here. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, that was probably the hardest thing. And how do you get it to be relevant? That was in the physics of the Buffyverse, and I ended up tying it into Xander's construction business and how he gives like rough estimates and then refines them gradually, and that's a perturbative approach. And what happens when something goes horribly, horribly wrong, um, then you get these huge sudden changes and you actually can't model them those as easily, uh, and, and your estimate just goes to hell. And that's essentially what a non-perturbative thing, it's what happens when you say try to model a cyclone or a tornado or a, black, a spinning black hole. So a lot of what I do is trying to find a way to make the abstract real. Um, and I do that through popular culture. I can do it through other forms of culture. I can do it through a profile. Um, my last couple books were more personal journey sort of books, um, trying to get across the notion of science as discovery with me in the role of a little explorer, first learning calculus and then kind of you know looking at the science of self. Um, and then the next one hopefully will be on black holes and the firewalls debate will be extremely abstract and that is going to be a huge, huge challenge. <laughs> so. Um, so while uh, Alex and Jennifer still write for a very sciencey audience, I've been taken away and I'm the science editor at Nerdist Industries now uh, here in Burbank. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you. Um, so uh, I started out um, very similarly writing experience wise um, to my colleagues here but now I am writing for specifically a lay audience not a science enthusiastic lay audience but a nerdy audience someone who would, people that would be at least interested in these topics um, so even more so now you have to use some kind of hook to get people in to learn about science it's just a fact of good writing you know, what is more interesting learning about how the brain processes language, you know, Broca's that kind of thing? If you're just talking about it abstract kind of way, like let's learn about this, or determining that Hodor from Game of Thrones has expressive aphasia and learning about the discoveries that would lead up to that diagnosis. That is immediately more interesting to me. Oh, and all Pokemon have that, by the way. <laughs> Just say their own name. Um, that's based on a man about 200 years ago who, could, who started calling himself Tan and could only say the word Tan for everything. And it was a basis for a lot of neuroscience of language. That's kind of abstract. And you can, you can imagine reading something like that in the New York Times or profile of somebody. But to make it accessible to an audience that is modern and is following, th you can't say it without acknowledging, I think, like, oh, would that, would Hodor be something like that? No, focus the entire thing around that, make it instantly burned into somebody's brain that, oh, this is how that works, I read this here, that kind of thing. So, uh, in my mind, pop culture is usually, at least for me, the sugar that makes the medicine go down. And I find that the Venn diagram of pop culture, the nerds and the people that like science, is way more overlapping than you think. So why not take advantage of that? I like it, everyone likes it. Why not try to also use that as a vehicle to learn something? And that's what I try to do. Okay. All right, so it's, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned Lord of the Rings. There was recently an article. Oh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Aren't they the same? <laughs> one, one does not simply make a mistake like that. Yeah, clearly, clearly. Um, well, so there was recently actually though a piece in, in the New Yorker, I, it may have been the New York Times, but I think it was the New Yorker, uh, that Randall Monroe, the writer and cartoonist for XKCD wrote about trying to teach physics to a high school class and just getting a wall of blank stares and starting to tie
tie it into Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. Um, you know, how... I think I know the answer for you, Kyle. Um, and, and given that you wrote the physics of the Buffyverse, I, I think I know the answer for you too, Jennifer. But I mean, how, how, how do you tie in all the pop science and all the fart jokes you need to keep people reading um, as you know you're going to Miyagi in some like delicious physics and chemistry when they're not paying attention? Sure. We going uh, to, to anybody. Open, open question. Um, you, want, you want the mic? All right. Um, well, uh, as you're asking that question, I was remember I was thinking about something else about how um, to your previous question about how to make it you know interesting to to everyone. Uh, I found that actually knowing a lot about the subject sort of makes it difficult because it's boring to be taught about something, uh, and so you know, finding, having that process of discovery so that your writing itself is a, you know, discovery about the subject is much more interesting. Uh, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that having these sort of applications to pop culture is like, you know, okay, you know, if I know all this, you know, stupid stuff about, uh, you know, different brain areas and whatever, that that can be dry and, um, and boring. But if, if I myself am like, oh, well, but you know, the World Cup is going on. Like, well, well, you know, why did he miss that penalty kick or something? You know, how does that play in, you know, what's going on in his brain there? Um, you know, that is, uh, is much more interesting because it's, it's taking something that uh, people are already interested in, but it's also, uh, for me, approaching it as, like, uh, a discovery uh, so I can, I can actually, you know, as I'm writing it, I'm actually figuring out how all this science fits into this situation um, uh, rather than just, you know, listing it out in a textbook. Uh, so I think that's one thing, you know, that's really helpful, uh, you know, aspect of, of pop science. And then, um, yeah, you know, you got to get people, connect with people on what they like already. Well, and I, I think there's a lot of different approaches. I mean, all my books are for a general audience and not a science audience. Uh, my articles are often a different matter. Um, but the books I actually wrote specifically to reach um, a layperson, which is why the pop culture hook, as, as Kyle said, was so useful. Um, but there's different ways you can do it. Um, and I tended with the physics of the Buffyverse, first of all, I wrote that on dare. Um, I was talking to someone about, you know, the granddaddy of all these books is, of course, Lawrence Krauss's The Physics of Star Trek. And I was talking to a physicist about that. And he just looked, and we, somehow we would also been talking about Buffy. He just looked at me and said, I bet you can't do it. He, he said, no, no, no. That's not, well, essentially, what he basically said was, I don't think there's ever going to be a book on, you know, the physics of the Buffyverse. And I went, challenge accepted. Um, which meant that he just looked at me pityingly and says, you realize vampires aren't real, right? Um, and I always try to explain to them, and they don't get it, that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is actually not about vampires. <laughs> but my approach with that book was far more metaphorical. Uh, you know, a lot of it was what Kyle was describing with Hodor looking at some of the attributes of some of the monsters and looking at some of their biology, looking at some of the, like the portals to other worlds and talking about wormholes and alternate realities and the multiverse and things like that. The Buffyverse is a multiverse. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it was interesting because people kind of, you know, the physics nerds actually really, really hated that book and the Buffy fans really loved it. <laughs> um, so choose your audience is what you first have to do, I think. Um, and there are other people, I think, that, that do, that manage to, 
get a sweet spot a little at, at the next level up. I'm thinking of Rhett Elaine, who writes the Dot Physics blog. Um, he had this entire series on the physics of Angry Birds, because he loved the game Angry Birds, and he literally sat down and did calculations and figured out, you know, the different physics of all the different trajectories when you shot the little... He wrote the book. And he, and he, he wrote a book. You know, the book wasn't as good as the blog post. So don't tweet that. It was it was genius, um, and it was it's he actually takes it the next step because he's a professor. He teaches people. He walks them through a problem. There's an equation. There's a problem to solve, and he walks you through all the steps. Um, that's something that I don't do, but um, it's incredibly useful. And I I feel that there's room for all of us. There's room for all these approaches. And some people are going to love Rhett's approach, and some people are going to love Kyle's, and some are going to love mine, and some are going to love yours. You know, let's all and Eric's, and let's just all do our thing and and reach who we can reach because it's it's hard enough. Sure. Um, I, I think the most important part when you're writing science in general is not to underestimate your audience. These are not... No, I, I like the way that Steven Pinker put it. It's, it's, it's not that you're smarter than anybody else. It's that you know something that they don't and you can explain it to them. It's, it's not like you have some secret knowledge that you have to reveal. Um, do not underestimate your audience. You'll see that in the comments section. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, my point is that people can sniff out when you are using pop culture just to get a clickbaity title out of this. Like, this is how this is like Star Trek's transporters, and it's and it's some physics press release about something that's not even close to what they are. And people just see the headline, don't even read the article. It's not interesting. Um, there is that sweet spot of actually using someone's fandom or something that they love as a vehicle to explain something that makes sense. You can use the universe, but don't break that universe. It's not fun to say that zombies aren't possible. That's not fun. It's, uh, oh, zombies can never happen based on science. Well, fuck you, science. Like, it's not... <laughs> That's vampires. Yeah, it that that that's not fun. Why don't you try to use zombies or vampires or whatever it's Halloween as a vehicle to explain virus transmission in the context of Ebola or influenza? It, you can take serious science topics and make it much more accessible because I do get questions saying, you know, is Ebola anything like a zombie virus? Is that's going is that going to happen? It's not a stupid question. But based on what people see in pop culture, oh, these viruses, they always spread to everybody through the air, and then everybody gets it, and everybody dies. Is that how Ebola works? No, because we have the science to explain that, and we can take measures based on what we know. And that's when it really becomes a powerful tool, using something that people already know to allay their fears or to explain something to them. Um, that's where I think the sweet spot is, because you underestimate your audience, and people will be like, you know, the first guy, well, the first guy will say first, and then the second guy, <laughs> the second guy will be like, this has nothing to do with Buffy at all, what a bullshit article, I'm done reading. Say there's a typo in the second paragraph. Yeah, and then, then there'll be a racist thing, and then a homophobic thing. Don't read the and comments. The, don't read the comments. <laughs> I read all the comments. You should, you should actually never read the comments. So I, so I, I, did, I did a piece for um, Escapist Magazine this past week in, in promotion for this book. And I was really excited because I've been going to Escapist Magazine for like seven years. They have a, a video blog by this guy, uh, Yahtzee, does this thing called Zero Punctuation. He just talked, right? I mean, there's a couple of video game nerds out here, I'm sure. And he's snarky and he's Australian, which I don't even know what he looks like, but it has to be sexy. And <laughs> I was so excited to write this 
piece for Escapist. And every now and then, I would go and check what people were saying about it. It was like the top five technologists, you know, my favorite five based on this book. And every, every single comment was, thank you, Lepton. What are you talking about? Why no, blah, blah, blah. You don't know anything. They actually said, this person has obviously never read the oatmeal. I'd link, <laughs> I'd link to the oatmeal in the article. And I, like, I went to write back, you haven't read the, ugh. But like, yeah, it's like <laughs> posting as yourself on Facebook. And we, we don't need that. But yeah, I should have. That's getting into the weeds. A yeah, bit yeah. Someone right. is wrong on the internet. Right. We can't. Oh, there it is, right? So here's, here's the next question, actually. Um, so. How do you feel when something you've written about enters the cultural zeitgeist? Not necessarily, you know, something that you wrote, something you've written about. I mean, are you feeling like a like a paleontologist the day Jurassic Park comes out? And you're like the coolest kid on the block. You're a little peanut butter and jealous. Like, where where do you fall on the spectrum here? No. <laughs> Don't say anybody. What's what's the? I mean, how do you feel when something when something you something you've written about? It goes viral, hits the cultural zeitgeist, but not necessarily your, not your baby, the, the baby down the block. Oh, well, fuck them. I feel, <laughs> like, I feel like we could ask. No. Oh, go, go for it. No, I'm actually going to say this because, you know, I, I have, I'm old, and so I have, like, you know, uh, what I've noticed, you know, I started blogging back in, you know, 2006, which is donkey's years ago in, in internet time. Um, and, you know, to the point now where I pretty much blogged it all, you know, and, and so now I find that, you know, stories break and go viral, and I already blogged about that like six years ago. Um, and there's just certain things that keep coming back, and I think that is essentially a good thing. I don't, I didn't mean it when I said, you know, screw you guys, um, because I think that, you know, things move fast, and there's a constant, you know, people keep growing up, there's a constant new fresh crop of people who this is all very, very new to, and what I think it's important to do is not fall into hipster syndrome where it's like, well, you know, I, I was into that before it was cool. You know, I blogged about that before it really went, like, you know, that seems to be, you know, the default that people have. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, a little bit of self-promotion, I'll, I'll click that link and then I'll say, and for more background information, I covered this a few years ago, and this is the update on that research, and they're both really, really interesting. Um, so you can, you, you can find a way to get your stuff in there, too. Um, but I think it, in, it's a net good. It's a feature of how the Internet works, that these things cycle in and out, and at some point, it'll hit the zeitgeist again, and then the people who were, like, cool and hip right now will feel like they were the hipsters. <laughs> um... Uh, when I've when I've written anything that's done uh, any kind of good traffic, I'm always I'm always pleased because there is someone. It, obviously, there are people out there who appreciate the geeky, nerdy approach. It's kind of like that renaissance of geeks are cool now, right? So when I uh, when I wrote a post about using statistics to try to determine what was the best starting Pokemon in Pokemon Red. And most people hated me. I was gonna say it's it's Squirtle actually. But Can we get, call it, call it, Rigby. I know you want to do it. Just stand up and do it. Do it. I can't do it. All right. Well, I'll do it together. One, two, three. A S Q U I R T a Squirt, a Squirt. It's Squirtles. We got a little Squirtles here. Some of us. What? What? We got a frisbee team called the Squirtles here in Los Angeles. It's a, oh. it's a see, I see. I would have gone um, definitely with Bulbasaur in that respect because uh, throwing a frisbee mu looks m much more like razor wind with the leaves. Oh. Anyway, it's next 
Um, but Squirtle sounds cooler. Squirtle. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm always pleased that there are people who appreciate no matter how nerdy you want to get, no matter how deep in the weeds you want to get, if you do it in the right way, people love you for it. And people really, really appreciate when you take what they love seriously. And I see that all the time. When I write about climate change, I do not get as I, the comments I get on a Pokemon piece are better thought out, more nuanced, have more sources and background information and than, than anybody commenting saying climate change is a hoax. Pokemon people are way better at that shit. It's, it's because you find something that someone is passionate about and then they're off and discussing, well, uh, how would the statistics work? Do I sample this way or that way? And what is, man, I should go to Wikipedia for this. That's all it takes to make something, make an impact in somebody's life. It doesn't matter to me if it's, you know, a hundred hits or a million hits. If it gets someone to say, you know, I never thought about that or these, you know, Lorenz transforms are really cool. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, go for it, man. Or lady. <laughs> Uh, the uh, well, I'm glad you brought up hits. Uh, that's uh, um, that is a really interesting uh, phenomenon of when you write something that you think is really good, but then you have very clear feedback as to how other how how good other people think it is, uh, or at least. And it, I've tried to you know figure out what is it that makes somebody like something because it really has no correlation to how good I think it is. Um, and uh, so I think you know when something either of mine gets popular or something uh, that uh, someone else has written that gets popular, even though I wrote about it you know first or whatever, I I really try not to take it personally. Uh, and it, you do because it's you know you have an ego, uh, but it's in, I, I feel like at least I've now I've developed a good uh, sense of humor about it because I uh, I remember when I first started writing my blog I had like uh, the first few posts you know I didn't know how many you know I sh hits I should get and it seemed like they were doing really well and then I you know a few months into it I wrote one about the placebo effect. Um, and I was like, oh, this is, oh, this is, like, I think this is the best one I've written so far. And it had like, you know, 30 views or something in the first day. You know, it was like, uh, it, it's, and even, I think that was like two years ago, and it still has the fewest of any uh, of the posts that I've written. Uh, and I think you have to, to do a... <laughs> well, I think you guys would be interested in it. It's, you know, the cure for the common cold. Uh, is taking advantage of the placebo effect. This is, uh, this is a rant that I always go on. People are always so down on the placebo effect. They're like, oh, well, does that work or not? You know, it's just the placebo effect. The placebo effect is real. It's just the reason that it works is not really known or it's not really specific to the molecule. So, like, I always take echinacea when I get a cold. And because I'm a scientist, people are like, oh, yeah, so should I take echinacea? Like, does it work or whatever? And I'm like, well, I take it for the placebo effect. <laughs> <laughs> and people have that reaction. They think that's a joke. Uh, but, like, I do take it for the placebo effect. I mean, I'm sure part of me is sort of, like, convincing myself that there may be, is there some eff effect? Uh, but I do believe that it will help my cold. I just believe that the mechanism through which it will work has nothing to do with 
the plant's echinacea, but it's just simply because I'm taking a pill. And why not take echinacea? Because maybe there's something. Uh, anyway, that was the post it was about. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was going to say is I think you have to do a little clever um, dissociation where you, when something does really well, you got to take, oh yeah, that's, I know exactly why that did well, because I did a great piece. And when something does not well, uh, you just sort of have to, oh, well, that's just circumstances uh, beyond my control. Um, and, you know, never minding those same forces are what, you know, cause the other things to do really well. But you have to, you know, have something that keeps you going. You just described my relationship with every ex-girlfriend I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to speak more about that? Actually, though, I would like you, I was wondering how you would, you felt about when someone else comes out with something you've written about. Because I was, just saw a, uh, an interview uh, on The Daily Show, I think, with this guy who uh, just wrote a book about, like, the six inventions that uh, changed uh, but yeah, I'm a little bitter. So I don't know if that was similar to your. <laughs> I go, I go to the courts. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? Uh, no, I, my, the way I feel, um, yeah, I'm. I think I'm less evolved than the three of you. I'm insta bitter, like immediately. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, yeah, it's right. Like, it's like six minute abs to eight minute abs, like. Yeah, right. Like exactly. Who's gonna buy eight minute abs? Thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, I, no, I. I uh, and then deep down inside, I thank you, Kyle. Thank you. That's why you're seated closest hey, to me. No and like, part of me thinks, oh, he or she definitely must have read what I wrote. <laughs> and that's where they got the idea. I mean, and I know it's not true, but it's, it's like you said, you know? It's like it's, it's my warm blanket that I wrap myself in to swaddle my genius in cloth and make sure it's well protected for tomorrow. I, I would add that, you know, it's, it's easy to forget, you know, internet moves very, very quickly and science is a long game. So, you know, even if you feel you got scooped, you can have another chance. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, one more question from in-house and then let's, let's kick it open. Also, I noticed no one's been coming up during the show to come and booze and you're all well behaved and your grandmothers are proud. But, I mean, let's, yeah, start a thank you. Yes, come do this. Bring it out. Uh, <laughs> Oh, good, good. Um, so, uh, last question up here. Please uh, get your questions ready. My last question, short and sweet, and it is, what pop size stuff do you like to read? And I'm going to answer my own question. I read quants. I love quants. I've been reading quants forever. For those of you guys who don't know it, quants is dinosaur comics. It's the same six panels of dinosaurs doing the exact same actions. And this guy who's a linguist writes some new funny stuff over the panels every day and has done it for the last, like, 3,000 days. And it's hilarious and awesome and nerdy and wonderful. And so, Quants is me. Um, I have a crazy large RSS feed of the typical large websites like Gizmodo and io9, just so I know what they're doing so I can do it first or better. Um, oh, I have an io9 writer here. Uh, I never scoop you, Jason. It's fine. Um, but, it, but, <laughs> but, but in terms of stuff that, you know, being someone in the pop side game, it's hard for me to get really interested in something that happens because I'm, I probably already read about it or something like that. I have a high threshold for, wow, that's interesting. I haven't seen this before because I am on Reddit all day. And I've, I've seen, check out this GIF. Yeah, I saw the GIF. Um, but the stuff I continually like to read is the stuff that is really producing new content. Um, you mentioned Randall Monroe of XKCD. I read What If, the blog that comes out every Tuesday 
every single time. Um, we have a colleague at Wired, uh, Atish Bhatia, who writes um, Empirical Zeal, who is always doing something interesting um, with sciencey stuff. Um, but I think the best way to kind of get in touch with the best content is to honestly uh, uh, follow, if, if you're on social media at all, follow the content producers themselves, follow the journalists or the writers that you like, and they will be mentioning kind of the cream of the crop stuff already. It's pre-curated for everybody, because if they want to read it, chances are that you will also like it because you like that writer. It's it's an easier way to find the best stuff, the best books, when you're finding already the people that are talking about it. And that's kind of how I sort through my day's science news and stuff. You know, you see the press releases and everything, but what is everyone actually talking about? And, and you, you find gems here. And I, I, I sort through the fire hose of news to find the gems, but it's worth it for me. I have a very, very similar approach to Kyle's. I just have this ridiculously large RSS feed. In fact, we read many of the same sites because yeah. we tweet all the same shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> um, we're very like-minded in that respect. Um, and uh, honestly, I do a weekly roundup. Kyle does a weekly roundup. Ed Young does a weekly roundup. You read us three, you pretty much got the science news that week. Um, you know, it covers all the, the, uh, the fields and things. Um, so I, you know, the, the, so I mean, but that can be very overwhelming. Um, it's very useful for me because, you know, you do start to notice trends. You start to notice that, you know, there's certain stories just show up in every single feed, um, the same ones. So these are people who, you know, they got, they all got the same press release and then had a really cool thing and they all just kind of regurgitated it. That is not as interesting to me. I understand that it serves a purpose and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I'm looking for, you know, longer features, things that show up on Eon, Aeon Magazine, uh, A-E-O-N. I, I absolutely love the stuff. I love humor, uh, original humor. Like the toast is kind of a new Nautilus. thing that I'm really Nautilus. I'm, I'm less keen on novels, but they have some good stuff. It's pretty. There's actually it's very pretty. It's beautifully designed. There's this quirky little thing called the appendix that does all these historical, gruesome, you know, stuff. So I look for those sorts of things. Something that's a little bit meatier. And the other thing that I absolutely love is um, there's a there's a couple of places like this is Colossal. It's called Colossal. They have gorgeous, gorgeous art all the time. Science. Unusual and, and very, very science. So science that informs art, and it's gorgeous. Half my half my desktop screensavers are, are are taken from those artists. So I, those are the things that I think that I really gravitate towards. Even though I do the fire hose thing as much as Kyle. Um, well, I think uh, I probably have less consumption of pop science because I'm uh, bombarded by uh, boring science, yeah, all all the time. Uh, but. Uh, um, but I do love Radiolab, uh, which I think uh, deserves a shout out. Um, and uh, I, mean, I, I mean, This American Life used to be my favorite uh, podcast on NPR, and at some point Radiolab surpassed it. Um, but yeah, definitely check that out if you haven't uh, seen it before or heard it before. There's nothing to see. Sorry. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, everyone, for playing ball. Uh, let's, hear, let's hear from the party posse. Yes. The tall blonde woman in the back. Yes. Can I tell you something yes. about her? Yes. Yes, I can. I'm not going to hold this for you the whole time. Oh, I thought it was like a, like a, like a lean sort of situation. Okay. Thank you, Kyle, for popping that balloon. Uh, what, what, uh, what would you like to know? Any, anything specific? What is it about? Uh, conquering the electron, which is released today. 
I got this spiel. I'm ready. I did so many. I was telling you earlier. I was telling Jennifer earlier. I've been doing these drive time radio interviews with like the wacky coach and nut butter, the crazy kooky guy. And and like in addition to all the, uh, where's Paul? So in addition to all the like augas that are going on the entire time, um, all these shows that I've been doing have been on the East Coast. So their like 8 a.m. is our 5 a.m. So I'm just like still in bed, forcing the smile onto my face so they can hear like the pageant queen in my voice trying to like give the pitch to all these people who are just like, just tell me the brown score. I don't even care. Um, but you do it. Uh, so, so I've got my pitch. Uh, so the story, uh, the, the story in Conquering the Electron is a sequence of stories really. And it's how stuff works meets TMZ. It's an explanation for all the rest of us about the science that drives everything we touch every day. The television, the telephone, light bulbs, computers, cell phones. Uh, the path that leads each invention inexorably to the next. And it also pulls back the curtain on history so you can see the Wizard of Oz for who he really is. Right? All these, all these dead white guys, they're, oh, they're these magical heroes or these geniuses, whatever. Plenty of them are just as horrible as the woman down the street who doesn't close the door when the dog barks every morning at seven, like you would hate them if you met them in real life. And so putting those stories out there too to make these people uh, feel accessible and just like us is, is one of the aims of the book. So will you give us an example? An example? Sure, sure. Uh, one of my favorite examples is, well, let me ask you all a question. Uh, who invented the telephone? Bell. Scream it out. Shout it out. Bell. 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 His name's Elisha Gray. Right. It's not Alexander Graham Bell, right? We've all been lied to our whole lives. Basically what happened is Alexander Graham Bell uh, got a bunch of money from another rich old white guy uh, to invent a device to improve the telegraph. Uh, he, as he was spectacularly failing at this, he fell in love with the rich white guy's daughter. He wanted to marry her. The guy wouldn't let him because he was a failure. And instead what he did is he bribed patent clerks at the US Patent Office to let Bell look at the telephone patent as soon as it came in. So what Bell did, he showed up, he copied all of the notes from the actual patent into the margins of his own. Then the, the father-in-law to B paid the same clerk to timestamp Bell's patent as having arrived just a few hours earlier. That's the story. That's why, I mean, winners write history. That's what happened. Alexander Graham Bell said, fine, I'll play ball. As long as I get to marry your teenage daughter, I will sell my soul and do this thing. Um, it, it, indeed, in the parlance of our times. Yeah, please. Go ahead, Jennifer. I, you're actually wrong about that. Good. <laughs> Good. That's what I want to hear. Um, uh, you know, you know the story, don't you? Um, and actually, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has held this up. Um, it was actually, it was, uh, are we going to argue about Mayuchi now? No, we're going to talk about the famous Dowd case of 1878. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, muscles on muscles on muscles. Um, no, it's, it's really, really a very interesting question who invented the telephone. Because, of course, what happened, you know, there, there was an Italian immigrant named Mayuchi. Um, and, uh, you know, he essentially designed his own version of the telephone and tried to patent it and there was this whole you know controversy over people basically the same kind of story of Elisha Gray it was someone basically in the patent office essentially uh, making sure that it was Alexander Graham Bell that got the credit Alexander Graham Bell was connected <laughs> um, so but I think the important thing is is you know obviously there was a huge writing at stake on, on the invention of the telephone because the patent came with just a huge fortune along with it um, but the fact is 
you know, the, the time was ready. There had been all this work. People were already playing around with all these apparatus. You know, people had been throwing the idea around. It was in the air. You know, people were talking about it. Um, and it really does, you know, that's when things like, you know, who gets the time stamp and the date, the date and time stamp at the patent office becomes so important. Um, the important thing is, is, is that these inventions, the telephone was going to happen, right? It's just a matter of who was going to do it first. And so it's actually, we have two, we have two oh, mics now. now. Have two. So one, one of the recurring themes through this book is sort of the Pac-Manning of history. And what's important isn't necessarily always the person who comes up with the underlying technology. It's the person who is visionary enough to be able to say, you know what, what I need to do is take that and that and that and connect all these dots in one row to make some syncretic device that can utilize all of these inventions and devices and, and advances that other people have come up with to better everybody's lives. Um, well, you know, I like, I would call it Pac-Man because at the end of the row of little dots, you get the big dot and then the ghost turn blue and that's where the money comes in. Uh, yeah. I was wondering, what happens when you encounter something that you think is really, really important and needs to be like, told to other people but you can't find a way into explaining that in, in, in a way that, you know, a, a lay audience may be able to understand? And so you're, you're stuck with this thing that's probably really important for a lot of people to know about, and there's not a way for them to really understand it. I, I think, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I think for all of us, that's kind of the, the magic of what we do is finding a way to, to, to figure out how to tell that story. And if it takes three minutes or it takes three months, like you keep on banging your head against the monitor until eventually something comes out that, that your kid brother can understand. Is that right? I mean, would you guys agree? Um, uh, it, it, for me, it depends on what it is. I, I rely on my colleagues a lot um, for stuff because I know there's going to be people writing great pieces about something, you know. Um, so, you know, when Ebola came to the U.S., it was going to be the story everywhere. I framed it as a don't panic kind of piece using the first line, the first line on the cover of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Listen, don't panic. And and then I also, you know, I also made made the the connections like this is not outbreak, this is not contagion. This is how it worked in those movies. This is how it actually works. This is why we know this. Sometimes you can do that, but to your question, we have beats. And sometimes it's just not my beat. There's things that I'm interested in and that I'd like to write about, um, whether it be, you know, a political or tying in, you know, cutting science funding or something like that for, for NASA. It's just not, it's just not my beat. Sometimes I will let it go because I'd rather let something go than write um, a piece that people can see right through like I'm trying to hook them, like I said before, because your audience will know if you're just trying to get those clicks from them, and that's when I let it into the aether. Can I, can I get a second crack on this answer, actually? Um, so I, I mean, you're looking at science, 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 Asian studies and economics. Like, I, I don't really have that much business being up here, frankly. Um, but I got lucky. You'll see there's, there's two names. I'm an English major, dude. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know, but you're also, I mean, come on. You're, you're not just the outside of the ordo. You're the inside, too. Um, I, I mean, there are, two, there are two titles on that book, and it's for a reason, right? My, my co-author, Dr. Derek Chung, is the scientist of this pair. And we got lucky in that his native language isn't English. And that's why I'm there, too, because he needed someone to tell these stories in a way people can understand. And so a lot of times we'd be working together and I'd be too dumb to get what he was trying to explain to me and he couldn't 
use language because he just didn't have the language skills. So we would just devolve into drawing pictures. And so it, when he needs to explain something to me using a picture, then it's easier for me to say, oh, I didn't get that either, but now I get it. You know, that's a really, of pictures, yeah. that's actually a really, really interesting point. Um, whenever I get advice from aspiring science writers, um, I, I say, if you think you understand it the first time around, keep asking questions because you don't. Um, <laughs> uh, when you, you know, because when you're writing for a general audience, when you really have to break it down, you have to keep that target audience in mind. You actually have to understand the science better. Correct. Yeah. You can't fake it. Yeah. Can't do any magical hand waving. I'm just going to skip over this technical part. Uh -huh. You know. Um, and uh, the other, the other, get, getting to uh, you know, how do you choose? You know. Uh, you know, how, you know, stuff that's important to a physicist, for example, versus what's important to a layperson. There's going to be certain nuances that are going to be really, really important to a physicist. I don't write for physicists. I'm I'm thrilled if they are entertained by what I read, but by, by what I write. But you know, it's going to be at a much lower level. Uh, my husband does not normally read popular physics books because he writes them, <laughs> and he has a PhD. So I, I'm actually on record on my blog for sticking up for the Bohr model of the atom, and it drives physicists crazy because that's the one it's the popular one I mean the, the, the nuclear commission actually uses the Bohr model as their little insignia and it's not entirely accurate from a purely quantum mechanics physics point of view but when I am writing for and a non-scientific audience trying to give the quantum mechanical interpretation of the of of the the model of the atom, where it's kind of a fuzzy cloud, you know, because of superpositions. There's a whole lot of shit that I then have to explain that's going to take like 5,000 words because quantum mechanics is weird and hard. Um, it's much easier to take the much simpler version, the Bohr model, talk about the little orbitals, talk about the jumping energy energy levels. That's and how the one that looks radiation. like the solar system. Exactly. You know, it's close enough. And I think the reason that it's it's still good is because we have this notion that we have to dump all the knowledge on people right away and they have to make them immediate experts. That's not how people learn. It's not how I learned about physics and it's not how anyone else is going to learn. And I'm sure Kyle and you will back me up on this. We learn in layers. We learn in iterations. So figure out the Bohr model. It's okay that it's not perfect. They're not going to understand the nuances of why it's not perfect. I didn't for at least two years because <laughs> it took me that long to like get enough a grasp on a quantum mechanics that I could make sense of what the actual picture was. But get them interested enough so they want to learn more and then they start reading more and maybe a year or two down the line now they're ready for that advanced bit. So you need all levels. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well just, just briefly I, I think the the harder part for me is not uh, necessarily explaining something to a lay audience. It's uh, getting them to care about it. Because <laughs> uh, like I could, oh, I could explain why, how that works. But like then the answer to that is, oh, so? Uh, so I think... Um, Classic I th physics problem. <laughs> uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I mean... That's the, you know, that's really the challenge uh, for me. And I think even, lots, you know, I always try and fall into, I always fall into the trap of trying to explain everything. Uh, because once you start to explain something, you know, one part of science, you're like, oh, and, but, you know, to really understand that, you need to know this and whatever. And, and that, uh, and, you know, my challenge is really to remind myself that not everything I write has to explain everything about the universe. Yeah. Yet. Yeah, yeah, I think we have time for one more question. Yes. Um, this is not really a question. It's uh, 
Two more questions. <laughs> That, that expands on what I was just uh, sort of saying is that, that you know there are so many interesting things about science uh, and the hard part is just getting people to uh, want to know them uh, because I think you know we all went through high school and we were all bored um, except you know for maybe occasionally a good teacher but that's what a good teacher does and I think people by and large like you don't have to be a scientist but people by and large are interested in these sorts of things it's just that most people who talk about them are boring uh, <laughs> and so yeah so like you know if it takes uh, Joshua for Jonathan Joshua for right uh, going you know he has it that is you know that's his hook uh, and in order to actually you know get into this to be able to uh, get people to want to learn it because they do want to learn it they just don't know they want to learn it and you have to create a story you know something to get them to want to learn it you point out one interesting thing and i, and I want to bring this up i was incredibly bored in high school chemistry class and i was paired with the bad kid you guys all know the bad kid you all had one i was my lab partner was the bad kid and so it was a pretty good high school so we had these like we didn't have like bunsen burners we actually had like gas like valves right there at everybody's individual desk and so what this kid would do was turn the valve and pull out his lighter because the bad kid he has one um, and start just lighting things on fire and I'd be sitting there at 15 and incredibly good and desperate to get an A and I'd be like no stop we need to like regurgitate this and now like I desperately wish I'd been paying attention to what the bad kid Dan Werder was doing because it was way cooler shit than what the teacher was, was trying doing, to tell me he was doing chemistry dude Right. Uh, to, to get to your question, I mean that's a that's a kind of a genre of science writing actually, and and uh, I did read it, um, and, and in part because I got interested in that particular genre because my last two books were sort of similar. Uh, the Calculus Diaries was the English major learning calculus, where I like dragged my husband to Disneyland and we figured out equations for the free fall, and um, and you know did the zombie apocalypse calculation, which is epidemiological, and now all those equations are in the news again because of Ebola. Um, and then uh, the, the latest book, Me, Myself, and Why, I looked at the science of self by getting my genome sequenced and dropping acid and getting my brain scanned. <laughs> I love and how you tried to just slip that in like no one was And the personality <laughs> testing. I become that person at the party on acid. It's like, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm really boring on acid. It's you <laughs> give me hope for my 40s. <laughs> so... 
Oh no, I, 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 dude, I'm 50. You know. <laughs> and my 50s and 60s and 70s, God willing. And I am proud of it. You know. So, but your your question is very apt because it is an entire genre, and there's a and there there is and it I don't just, can I, can I have just a little peril? You know. <laughs> Some of that peril was fun. Um, and, and there's a reason, because it, it helps people connect, you know, like I said, science is a process of discovery and it makes you the everyman and they follow you along the process of discovery and it makes it so much more palatable and so much more interesting. I thought it was a fantastic book. Uh, thank you, Jen. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, everybody, for showing up tonight. Thank you, everybody, for showing up tonight. I know there are a few people who didn't get to ask their questions. We're going to be hanging out for at least four and a half bottle minutes, whatever that equation is. Um, so please come chat with your favorites, get them massages, buy their books, do, uh, do what you need to do. Thank you again, everyone, for coming out. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.